When I was a young man in college, someone handed me a gospel track. I was already a believer, but I was very interested to look this over because I was trying to figure out the best way to talk to others about the gospel myself. And so I started to look through the seven, eight, ten pages, whatever they were there, just taking note of the statements that were made and uh, everything that was in there. And then I came to the end of the track, and on the one of the final pages, there were three circles that were drawn. In one circle, there was a, uh, well, in every circle, there was a throne in the middle. In one of them, there was a man sitting on the throne, and outside the circle was a cross. And then, uh, I guess, sort of representing the, the, the person that has nothing to do with Christ. And in the other circle, there was a, still a man sitting on the throne. And, but within the circle, the cross was now placed. And in the final circle, uh, the man had actually gotten off of the cross, uh, off the throne and put the cross there, and he was bowing down to it. And I, I was kind of examining this and thinking through this, because as I said, I was trying to myself figure out how to talk to people about the gospel. And I noticed something right away. I'm so fairly simplistic, but this jumped off the page at me. There was no scripture. And the reason I took note of that is because the way I was memorizing this track, the way I was trying to use it for my, I was actually taking note and memorizing each of the verses as I went by each page and trying to visualize in my mind the verse that goes with that particular statement, that particular step. And I got to that one and there was no scripture. Not surprising because there's nowhere you'll find in the Bible that ever presents that view of Christianity. And yet a lot of people have it. A lot of churches have it. This idea that there are three classes of people. There are those who are unbelievers, have nothing to do with Christ. And then there are those who are believers and have bowed to the authority of Christ and submit to Him. But then there's this third category of people who have invited Christ in some way into their life or their circle. But they themselves still rule and reign on the throne of their hearts. Well, you won't find any scripture to ever support anything like that. Paul didn't teach it. John didn't teach it. James didn't teach it. You won't find it anywhere on the pages of scripture Anywhere on the pages of the New Testament, you won't find any teaching that suggests that a believer can have a life in which Christ is there, but he has no submission to him. And yet, when you hear the gospel presented today, you are probably just as likely to hear an invitation from someone to make Jesus the Lord as you are for someone to come and believe. You're just as likely to hear someone give an invitation in your common gospel presentation for someone to come and maybe bow at an altar, respond to an altar call, come down and make some rededication, some higher level of commitment in their life, some moment when they finally give over the lordship of their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Never any statement to suggest that that person may actually never have believed. People have tried to categorize or carve out a category, I should say, in which a person could have Christ in his life and yet at the same time have no visible indication that the Lord is reigning or ruling in any part of his life. As a matter of fact, they've tried to find passages to support this notion. Some people, for example, have taken 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul says he couldn't speak to the Corinthian believers as spiritual but as to fleshly people. They've tried to take that to construct the concept of what they call a carnal Christian. That is a person who's asked Christ in his life, but every, everything in their life continues in a pattern dominated by sin. They are, in other words, they are carnal. As I said, you'll never find that anywhere on the pages of Scripture. You'll never find that in the words of the apostles. You'll never find that on the lips of our Savior. James certainly didn't teach that. He taught that there's a faith that has no works, but it's a dead faith. Peter never taught that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never taught that. Paul certainly doesn't teach that. As a matter of fact, in the very book that people sometimes employ to justify the concept of a carnal Christian, if you just keep reading 
a chapter or two later, what you find is Paul giving instruction to the church that if someone isn't living a life consistent with their profession, they're to be expelled from the church. They're to be put out of the church, he says in 1 Corinthians 5. And in the very next chapter, our passage for this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, we find Paul making this statement in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It's a clear message. Powerful message. Unfortunately, one that's often overlooked in the rush to sort of legitimize the number of people out there who believe in a deceived way that they're going to heaven when there's absolutely no evidence based on their life that that is where they are heading. It's overlooked this passage perhaps because it's sort of sandwiched in between a a section that we looked at last week, first eight verses that talk about lawsuits between believers and, and the remainder of this chapter, which really talk about sexual immorality among believers. But, but wedged in here is this powerful, clear, unambiguous message about what a believer looks like, or more likely what an unbeliever looks like, and a challenge from the Apostle Paul for us not to be duped and us not to be deceived in examining ourselves or examining the lives of others because there are certain behaviors that mark the life of an unbeliever. There are certain patterns of life that you will see that Paul says make it unmistakable when someone, no matter what their profession with their lips, it makes it unmistakable what their relationship with God is and what their, what the, their eternal destiny is. So Paul sort of bursting forth here in verses 9 through 11 is warning us, reminding us about the behaviors of unbelief. He's warning about the possibility of deception in light of these behaviors, the patterns that are there, and ultimately the power of the gospel to change them. Let's uh, look this morning, just taking note for a moment, first of all, at the deception, the possible deception. Paul says, don't you know this in verse 9? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's a rhetorical question, just like all the others in this chapter. It's been almost nothing but questions up to this point. And the answer is supposed to be obvious. Of course not. Of course the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course those whose lives are characterized by sin and ungodliness and depravity are not going to heaven. Of course It ought to be obvious. And to assume otherwise would be to be self-deceived. Now, this really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who spent any time reading the Bible, anyone who spent any time reading the New Testament in particular, and for a matter, even the words of Christ. I mean, in the beginning of his ministry, he gave a sermon in which he sort of uh, finished it by By this warning, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So he ends by saying, look, uh, there will be those who come to me and they have some sort of verbal statement. They have some sort of verbal profession. They've made some sort of proclamation with their lips. And he says, they're not going to enter heaven. Instead, he says, it's those who do the will of my Father. In fact, he goes on to say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll say, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they'll come and they'll have some testimony of sensationalism. They'll have some testimony of good work. It might have been a sudden burst of religious activity in their life that soon faded after a few months. Or there might be some sort of facade that they continue on throughout all of their days. But at the core of their being, Jesus says, they are not workers of law. They're workers of lawlessness. At the core of their being, they are not doing the will of his father in heaven. That's not what characterizes their life. That's not how you would define them in their behavior. Later on, he'll, he'll, he'll define the absolute commitment that salvation demands, telling his disciples, 
Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the sort of absolute commitment it takes to be a disciple of Christ. This is the sort of life that is demanded of those who are going to heaven. They they have, at a fundamental level, every person who follows Christ has a surrender of their life to Christ. A surrender. So anyone who reads the words of Christ wouldn't be shocked to hear the unrighteous are not going to heaven. Anyone who spent any time reading about heaven wouldn't be shocked to hear that either. In that same sermon, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually told us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says. So it's actually those whose lives are are so pronounced in their righteousness that they actually suffer some sort of blowback, some sort of some sort of uh, ridicule. Or when you come to the book of Revelation, you hear John, he sees a vision in Revelation 21 and he hears this, quote, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I'll be his God and he will be my people. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Next chapter, Revelation 22, he hears Quote, blessed are those who wash the robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, end quote. So anyone who's done any time reading about heaven shouldn't be surprised to hear Paul say that the unrighteous will not inherit it. Anyone who spent any time reading the Apostle Paul would also quickly realize that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 6, I invite you to turn with me there. If perhaps maybe you've heard some representation of Romans and maybe you think it is the book that champions some gospel a verbal profession, some gospel that demands only some statement with your lips and some internal consent in your mind and heart, but makes no demand on your life. In case that's what you thought Romans was all about, you read Romans 6 verse 20. Paul says, when we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end is eternal life. Paul says, look, if you're in Christ, or better yet, if you're on a road whose end is eternal life. If you're on a pathway to heaven, if you're on a road that leads to heaven, all along the way, what you're going to find are fruits of sanctification. And by the way, the entryway to that road is to become a slave of God. There's no other pathway. Jesus said himself that there are two roads There's a broad road that many people are going down, and it's a path that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow way that few people find, the pathway that leads to eternal life. The ironic thing is that over both of those, there's a banner that says happiness, in some cases says heaven. There are many people who are on roads Many people who are on pathways that they think end in eternal life. But Paul says that if you're on the pathway whose end is eternal life, it's a pathway that begins by becoming a slave of God. And all along the way, it leads to a certain fruit, which is sanctification. 
He says in verse 23, for the wages of sin and death is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're a Christian, if you're on your way to heaven, then you're on your way there, first of all, by becoming a slave to God, and second of all, with the definitive fruit that confirms your place and your position and confirms your eternal destiny, the the, the definitive fruit of sanctification. So if you spend any time reading the Bible, if you spend any time hearing the words of Christ, if you spend any time reading Paul or reading about heaven, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. The unrighteous will not inherit heaven. Now that's not to say, by the way, that heaven is only for perfect people. That's not what we mean when we talk about the righteous and the unrighteous. We're not saying perfect people. We're speaking about a pattern of behavior in their life. We're speaking about an overall, an, an overall characterization in their lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. You see, what passes away is your old way of thinking, your old way of believing, your old attitudes toward God, your old love of sin. All of that stuff passes away and it is replaced by new ways of thinking. It's replaced by new loves, a new love for God, a new love for His Word, a new love for His people, a new hatred for sin. And all of that yields forth a new lifestyle, a new kind of behavior. So that there's no other way to describe you but as a new creation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, if you've heard Christ as the truth is in him. In other words, if you've heard the true message about Christ, this is what you've heard. That you put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. If you've heard the true message of Christ. This is what we're talking about when we talk about people who are righteous. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about people who are bound for heaven. They're not perfect, but they've been made new. And everything has changed. They have new hearts that yield forth new ways of living. So Paul's asking them, surely, surely you know this. Surely you understand that heaven is not for the unrighteous. Surely you're not out there propagating that message and deceiving others as to what heaven is really all about and who's really going there. Don't be deceived. Now with that, Paul begins to give them sort of a representative list of the patterns of unbelieving behavior that he has in mind. And it's not an exhaustive list. Paul gives ten words here that sort of describe the unbeliever's life. You could be you know, more extensive. You could add to this list. But Paul probably chooses these words because they were somewhat representative of the society around these Corinthian believers. And maybe proposed the greatest temptation for them to lower their standards and maybe tolerate this kind of behavior in their own midst. But as we'll see as we go not only through the rest of this chapter, but throughout the rest of this book, there was already those who were actively campaigning within the church to accept some of this unbelieving behavior as just simply natural. I mean, it's just sort of, it's sort of human nature. It's sort of just just wound up in who we are biologically, physiologically, chemically, whatever you want to say. It's just sort of it's sort of natural to expect that some people would struggle with these things. And so it shouldn't be such a big deal. Well, Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. First of all, the sexually immoral, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Very familiar word in Greek. It's the word pornos. The broadest word for sexual immorality you'll find in the Bible or in Greek, ancient Greek language. He'll go on, by the way, to mention a number of examples of sexual immorality, even in his own list. But he begins by saying that those 
whose life is characterized by sexual immorality in any way have no claim to being a believer. Whether it's ungodly sexual behavior within the bounds of their own marriage, or I should say beyond the bounds of them as a married person, or whether it's ungodly sexual behavior in their life as an unmarried person. This word covers it all. And Scripture couldn't be more clear. This is the will of God, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. In case there was any doubt in your mind, in case anyone ever tried to to deceive you, in case anyone ever tried to justify some behavior, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul says, look, there's two categories of people. There are those who don't know God and therefore are driven by the passions of their sexual desires. And then there are those who are God's people who know how to control those things. This is the will of God, he says. This is what God demands of every believer. There will be those who try to deny it. There will be those who try to proclaim even God's blessing on their illicit relationships. There will be those who in the euphoria of some romantic feeling believe that somehow that's confirmation that this is God's will. That God has led them to this. I've actually heard people say that. People engaged in adulterous affairs will tell me, well, God brought us together. No, He didn't. Not according to my Bible. This is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There will be those who try to excuse their sin as common to man. Well, everyone is kind of struggles with it. Everyone does this. So therefore, it must be acceptable, at least acceptable to man, if not acceptable to God. No, it's not. People who try to justify it in their own mind because it has become common in society, acceptable in society. People who minimize its risk and therefore minimize their guilt and so continually place themselves in, in a, a, a place of temptation over and over again because they no longer believe clearly that this is the will of God. Paul says that's not how believers act. That's not the way a true believer acts. Now, that's not to say that a true believer couldn't fall into sexual sin. Even as a believer, who've walked with the Lord, there have been those who've fallen into sin. Certainly, King David is the classic example of this, right? But what do you see in David? You see a man who, when he was confronted, when he was exposed, he did what every true believer will do. He hated his sin He repented and he came back to the Lord. All true believers do this. All true believers will. That's what Paul's saying. Sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, idolaters, which we mentioned a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 5, probably doesn't refer to people who are going on a regular basis, a weekly basis, bowing down to pieces of wood or metal. They really would have had No interest probably at all in the church if they were that wrapped up still in pagan idolatry. But what they had really done is they had really bowed in their hearts to the pressures of society before they ever bowed to any hunk of wood. Probably because it was just expected in those days that you would give assent and acknowledgement to the pantheon of gods that are out there. As a matter of fact, if you didn't, you were branded and characterized by society as an atheist. Christians themselves came under that moniker for probably the first two, three hundred years of their existence. They were labeled by the society around them as atheists because they didn't believe in the gods that everyone else believed in. And so it was just expected that if you were in society, if you were in social discourse, If you're in academic discourse, if you're in business discourse, it was just accepted that you would give assent to this worldview that there are many gods, that there are many truths, that there are many pathways, that there's this pathway, a pantheon of gods. As we'll see later when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 
there were those in the church who were trying to live a duplicitous life. They were saying, look, we all know in our minds that that an idol is nothing. We all know that these things are really nothing. But the unstated part of 1 Corinthians 8 is that they were nevertheless participating in idolatrous, blasphemous, and pagan ceremony. They had found a way to justify in their own hearts participation in the public worldview discourse while still thinking that somehow they could be faithful to Christ. Paul says that's not a believer. That's not a believer. Someone who out of convenience or out of greed or out of pragmatism or whatever will give lip service to the common worldview that's out there while at the same time wanting to give lip service when they're in church to Christ, that's not a believer. A believer isn't ashamed of his Savior. A believer stands firm in his profession even in the face of an unbelieving world. Paul says, don't be deceived. uh, Thirdly, he mentions adulterers, which is the more specific word, moikios, the word related to married persons who engage in sexual uh, acts outside of their marriage partnership. It is abhorrent. All sexual immorality is abhorrent in the sight of God, but this one particularly because of what it does to the family. It is particularly heinous to the Lord. In fact, in the Old Testament, After just one offense in this area, the law called for the death penalty. Just one offense. You found guilty, you were stoned. The problem is that as the law itself was being instituted, as as Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law of God... Down at the foot of the mountain, Israel had already turned aside to idolatry. And as a part of their idolatry, it was literally filled with adulterous interaction between all the people who were there. And so because Israel proved to be so hard-hearted, so stiff-necked, so rebellious, Moses had to make a provision. Otherwise, the entire population would have been decimated out of guilt over this particular sin. And so he made a provision for the guilty person simply to be sent away by decree of divorce rather than executed. But it doesn't detract from the fact that this is a heinous sin in the sight of God. A heinous sin that calls for death of the guilty party. It had to be dealt with so swiftly, you see. Because when it, when it, is, when it, when it is a sexual act outside of the boundaries of marriage, when someone has made a, a marriage commitment and then gives themselves over to this lifestyle, it corrupts now not only them, and maybe not even only their participant in that, it corrupts families. It corrupts society. It corrupts the children and inevitably brings harm to them no matter how much you want to deny it. And those are just the initial effects. The book of Proverbs is filled with description after description of the extent of the pain and anguish that a person brings upon himself when he goes down this pathway. Paul says, don't be deceived. These these are not the people. No matter what they think, these are not the people who are headed to heaven. And next, he lists men who practice homosexuality. It's really not the best translation in the ESV. The New American Standard breaks out both terms, because there are actually two terms here, saying the effeminate or the homosexual, except for the fact that effeminate is sort of an unspecific word, right? See, the difficulty here is Paul uses two words, the first describing the one engaged passively in a homosexual act, the other referring to the person who's taking the more active role. In some ways, it's a, it's a, it's a, in some ways, it's a commentary on the depths of depravity of the Roman world that was all around Paul, that they had actually developed such specific terminology for those who were engaged in this kind of sin. Reality is Roman society especially aristocratic society, was, was absolutely dominated by homosexuality. It was quite common. In fact, it was considered to be natural for men to have attraction both to other males and to women. 
Nero himself, who lived right in the time of the Apostle Paul, he himself had a young boy castrated so that he could bring him along as a second wife, who was then passed down to, to emperors after him. We're told 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors engaged in sexual immorality. Socrates himself conducted his life this way and celebrated it. Plato wrote a symposium of love, which is a treatise glorifying homosexuality. It wasn't shameful. It wasn't looked down upon at all. So anyone who thinks that what Paul has to say here is some reflection of some sort of retarded standard of society that was just sort of uh, uh, representative of the, of the world that he lives in has no understanding of, of the context out of which Paul writes. Even in the midst of a society that had gone headlong down this pathway into homosexuality, Paul stands forth and he says, this is not the will of God. And anyone who's engaged in this kind of behavior has no right to call themselves a child of God. Homosexuality, sex chains, transvestitism, all the gender perversions that are out there are an abomination to the Lord who made man in his own image, who created them male and female, we're told, Genesis chapter 1. God did that not just for the sake of creativity and not just for the sake of variety. He did it as a reflection of himself. He did it as a reflection of something of the beauty of his own Godhead. He did it for the sake of complementarianism. Because God knew that as he designed marriage, not just biologically, but socially, economically, emotionally, relationally, that it was the only pathway by which people could experience something of the beautiful complement within a relationship between two people that God reflects in His own self. That's why the two in a marriage relationship become one flesh. No other relationship that you'll ever have is ever described that way. Not between parents and children, not between friends. Only a marriage between a husband and a wife. And so the Lord has always strictly forbade the blurring of these roles at all. Not only in sexual immorality, but even in things like dress. He says in Deuteronomy 22, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For whoever does these things, it is an abomination to the Lord. The Lord even wanted us to guard the distinctions in our dress and in our behavior. Never wanting those things to be blurred at all. And so what you find in Scripture, universally, is homosexuality condemned as a perversion and a perverse substitute of the joys that God intended for marriage. It's a, just like with adultery, it's an abomination to the Lord because it attacks the family. It corrupts God's plan for the family. It, it, it sort of restricts and hinders the passing of righteousness from one generation to the next. And so it's no surprise that those societies which themselves are plunging further and further into destruction or have have been the societies and are the societies that are most plagued by sex role perversions. Those societies which throughout history have been the most brutal, the most unjust, the most greedy, have been the societies that are themselves the most Corrupt in this area, no doubt because Satan is so intent on destroying societies by beginning by destroying homes. Of course, the most infamous example of this is Sodom, who had been so enraged with their own sexual perversion that when God sent two angels there, they surrounded the house of Lot, Abraham's nephew, and demanded that they be handed over so that they could be abused. God says in Genesis 18, because their sin was very grave, he had to destroy them. This was the place which apparently had attracted or where all the people who engaged in homosexual behavior had congregated and God was going to rain down destruction on them. That's why even to this day, 
this particular sin is often identified as sodomy. Even in the record books of our own laws. An unlawful behavior. God's word couldn't be more clear. Despite the slow slide of evangelicalism towards accommodation in this area, despite the repeated attempts to redefine the biblical terminology, despite the fact that people try to to claim that what Paul has to say was too culturally defined by a, a prudish society around him, all these attempts are not only deceptive and misleading, they're worst of all damning. Because Paul says these people who practice this kind of sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, Paul adds to this list, verse 10, thieves, kleptes is the word. It's the broadest word for thievery. There are other specific words that refer to those who would brutally attack you and take your things or may break into your home and take your things. But Paul uses the general word here for all kinds of theft, whether, whether it's, it's, it's goods on your person or whether it's goods in your home, whether it's goods in your account or whether it's goods that are yet owed to you. And people are taking them. This would include extortioners, embezzlers, promoters of defective merchandise and, and, and defective service, false advertisers, all these people who are intent on taking from you and not giving in return. These people who themselves may look at the church as an opportunity for networking, as a market for them to exploit, these people who want to maybe cover up their sin with some respectability of religious life, they have no place in the church and they have no place in God's kingdom, Paul says. Don't be deceived. They may be stealing for whatever their motive. They may be stealing because they have some addiction that they have to feed. They have some drug that they have to buy. They may be stealing because they have some status of life they're trying to maintain. But no matter what they're doing, they're doing it against the will of God and they're giving evidence that they're not a child of God. Ultimately, many steal because they're greedy, which is Paul's next word, the next vice that he lists, the covetous person. Again, this is a word that's often associated in Scripture with other things, and particularly it's associated with injustice. It is the, the, the greed that manifests itself in unjust gains, in other words. It's not an outright condemnation of anybody who has wealth. It's a condemnation of the person who has no scruples in seeking it. Second Peter talks about those who in greed exploit others with false words. They take advantage of others by trickery, by shams, by deceit, by fraud. This basically is the person for whom the world is all there is. Paul mentions them in Philippians chapter 3. He says their God is their belly who set their minds on worldly things. In other words, they they take no thought of giving an account one day for the way they conduct their business. They take no thought of giving an account one day before God for the way they treat others. They just live as as if this world is all there is. Paul says that's not the life of a believer. A believer conducts himself, whether it's in his personal affairs or whether it's in his business affairs, he conducts himself as one who will give an account, who will stand before God one day to answer for all that he does. These people have no place in the kingdom of God, Paul says. Likewise, drunkards, one of the earliest sins ever referenced in the Bible and one of the most devastating It permeates, of course, beyond the drunkard himself to all those who are close to him, to his individuals, to his families, because besides the personal toll that it takes on his own life and his own reputation, it takes a financial toll on his family as he feeds his addiction before he feeds even his own family. It's often accompanied by so many other sinful behaviors, not the least of which is deception. And so... What you see typically with a drunkard is not only is he destroyed by engaging in the sin, but it destroys people around him. 
It destroys the relationships that surround him, whether it be with his wife or with her husband, whether it be with their children, whether it be with an employer, so that at the end, a drunk often ends up as an outcast, not simply because they're drunk, but more than anything, because they're so deceptive. By the way, we use the word drunkard very intentionally, not as a derogatory word, but as a very biblical word. There's been a modern attempt to sanitize this sin and label it under things such as alcoholism, which is passed off perhaps as a disorder, but sometimes and increasingly as a disease. But you know, a disease, in order to be, in order to be categorized as curable, a disease has to have some medicine or some operation that leaves a person with no chance of relapse. That's what it has to be in order to be characterized as curable. Well, in that situation, disease, excuse me, uh, drunkenness is incurable. And this is what you hear coming from the world around you. If you're a drunk, you're always a drunk. I mean, you might be a sober drunk, but you're still a drunk. You've got some disease. You've got some disorder. Well, the problem with that is that first of all, not only does it remove the guilt, I mean, who's really guilty for their disease, right? But worse, it removes hope. A person who's decimated their life by drunkenness and is told you'll always be a drunk has no hope. But when you come to the Scripture, what the Scripture says, no, it's not a disease, it's a sin. And like any sin... By the power of the gospel and by the power of Christ and by the working of the Holy Spirit, you can repent. You can be cleansed. You can be made new. Your life can be restored. You can become a new creation. You have an option. And it isn't just to cope and it isn't just to manage. You have an option to repent. Paul's saying this is what every believer will do. And no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul mentions next revilers, which just in case you thought that sins of the tongue are somehow in a lesser category, he throws this in. It's a word that is derived from insult, but it has particular reference to those who insult to the face. There are other words to talk about slanderers or people that might talk behind your back, but this really represents the angry person, the quarrelsome person, the bitter person, the person who has no qualms about, uh, about casting insults before your face. Paul says this is not the kind of person who ought to be calling themselves a Christian. It's not the kind of person bound for the kingdom of God. And then he finally says swindlers, which might be better translated snatchers. It's the same word in 1 Thessalonians 4 to speak about the rapture of the church, those who are snatched away. It speaks here specifically about those who would resort to outright violence in forcibly taking things from other people. These people obviously have the kind of behavior not represented as a believer. All that leads to Paul's final comment about these behaviors of unbelief. And that's the power of the gospel to overcome them. These beautiful words in verse 11, such were some of you. Look, if you show up here maybe today, maybe regularly, and you look around and what you see are families that seem to be happy and people that seem to be having their act together and seem to be going in the right direction, don't assume that what you see is the product of pristine homes and perfect parenting and the right kind of circumstances. What you see is the power of God. What you see is a group of people for whom it can be declared, such were some of you. You were the adulterers, you were the liars, you were the thieves. In some cases, you were the homosexuals, you were the people who were living in those behaviors. And what happened to you was the power of God grabbed hold of you and brought you out and made you a new creation. That's what Paul's saying to these people. This was who you were, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. 
Here you were, you were the drunks, you were the adulterers, you were the outcast. You weren't people who were predisposed to righteousness. But you're changed, he says. You've come out of those lifestyles. Meaning, first of all, that there was someone who reached out to them in that lifestyle to begin with, right? There was someone who was willing to love the thief and love the homosexual and love the adulterer and love the embezzler. There was someone who was willing to reach into their life wherever they were and share the the glorious gospel with them. But secondly, it obviously means something's happened to them. They're no longer this way. They have been radically changed, which is what every person should see when they walk into the doors of a church. They shouldn't see sitting around them all uh, on all the seats. They shouldn't see a representation of the same kinds of things that they see in the world. They ought to see changed people. They ought to see radically changed people. And Paul speaks about it here with three words that summarize the power of the gospel, each emphasizing a different aspect, but every one of them inseparably a part of the gospel. He says, for example, you were washed. This speaks about regeneration. It talks about the the cleansing of your life that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, you were saved. He says, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. There's a cleansing that takes place when you're saved. And the Bible knows nothing of a salvation apart from this regenerative work. The Bible knows nothing of a salvation, uh, nothing of a, a life of a believer that remains unwashed. Secondly, he says, you were sanctified. That is simply a word of dedication, a word of setting apart something. And we've talked about this, how there is in sanctification a definitive aspect where whenever God sets His love upon you, He declares you as sanctified for Himself. That is to say, He claims you for Himself, set apart from sin and set apart for His righteousness. That's a definitive part. But then there's also a progressive part where where progressively throughout your life, God working through His Holy Spirit is in the process of removing you further and further and further away from those old patterns of sin. And the Bible says that this this sanctification is true for all believers. It's true for all believers. Finally, He says you were justified. That is to say... That you've been declared before God as righteous. Now this isn't something that you work up to. Paul isn't giving these in progressive order. It's not like when you come to Christ and when you come into the church, the first thing you do is you wash and clean up your life and then you kind of You kind of hang around long enough and you're sanctified. And then finally, when it's all said and done, you stand before God and He declares you righteous. This isn't progressive. All three of these words are simultaneous. The moment that you encounter Christ and you believe, the moment that you surrender your life to Him, God declares you His own. He recreates you with the washing of regeneration. And at that moment... He declares you that in His presence, you are just. You're right. You're clean. There's no more sin. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what your background is. It really doesn't matter how long or how briefly you've been in the church. It really doesn't matter what the behaviors are that have dominated and characterized your life. The power of the gospel can cleanse them all. It can save you. It can remake you and redeem you. And God stands you before Himself and He declares you righteous, not because of anything that you've done in your life, but because of the righteousness of His Son. See, it's the perfection of Christ that's placed on you. 
It's the perfection of Christ that God looks at you through. You're justified. You're declared holy. As Paul says here in verse 11, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says to these people, look, you know this because this has happened to you. He could just as well say it to us. I mean, we could stand here and we could have person after person come up to this platform and give testimony and they could say, I once was, but now I am. The gospel of Christ, the power of Christ has grabbed hold of me. We're a church here of people who've come out of sexual immorality. We're a church here of people who've come out of drunkenness. We're a church here of people who've come out of greed. We're a church here of people who've come out of insulting and, and reviling lives, chaotic lives. But this is what we were. But now we are by the power of God. This is the true gospel, no matter what people say. It isn't, it isn't some half-step inviting Christ into your life by praying some prayer, but continuing to go on your merry way with what you have been doing. It is an all-out demand to submit your life to Christ and let Him transform you. That's the only way. The only pathway to heaven. That's the only ones whose road ends in eternal life. It's only those who've been changed, who've been washed, who've been sanctified. Only those who are justified before God. Look, we don't have an altar call here at our church. But we we have an invitation. Every time you come, there's an invitation for you to respond Because perhaps God has been speaking to you, maybe today, or maybe this week, you've you've been calling out to the Lord, you've been looking for answers in your life. We're here to tell you, God is speaking to you, and He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to come to Him, bow your life to Him. And He'll take everything that's broken and He'll make it new. He'll take your life and make you a new creature in Christ. And you'll find heaven. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the power of this gospel. We think back now to the lives out of which we came, the pathway of destruction that we were on behaviors that dominated our lives. Or we think, again, we're reminded again of the beautiful message of your truth. Help us to guard it unadulterated. Help us to keep it and proclaim it. Help us to reach out to those who are themselves still bound up in this kind of life. And help us proclaim the power of salvation to them, the power of the cross. Lord, we will do it and trust you that that power will flow not only in our lives, but by our lips and the message that we speak. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.